Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons and Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out the Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Join co-hosts Will and Brian as they break down the lore of a rich multiverse 50 years in the making in a lighthearted and beginner-friendly way. They cover everything from character creation options to tips for dungeon masters. There's something for everyone, no matter how long you've been playing TTRPGs. Find the Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. Realm Presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 7. The Rookery. The wagon grinds to a halt, and the irregulars pile out into the muddy lot and disappear into the Vardos, or the Big Top, to work on their performances. All except Knack, who leans against the open wagon door. I'm sorry about your friends, he says in a quiet voice. I've been where you are. If you want to talk, just let me know. When he leaves, he closes the door behind him, and I'm left in the dark. In the Southland, the light stretches on forever, damned hot and strangely comforting. Here in the deep north, it gets dark fast. There seems only a sliver of daylight between days of darkness. I drag myself out of the wagon. Cold light filters through the industrial clouds, hanging low over the rooftops. The warm glow of the irregulars vardos surrounds me. Music and the smell of food cooking drifts through the lot, and I realize I have nowhere to go. Nack had lent me his Vardo to stay in, but I can't go back there now. I wouldn't be able to stand Nack's attempts to help, to make me feel better, those big eyes of his pleading for me to talk about it. So what if he's felt what I'm feeling? It's not like it's the first time I've lost someone I care about either. I've been to this dance before. I know all the steps. At the edge of the semicircle of Vardos, there sits a small, darkened trailer, standing askance of the otherwise uniform formation. The clouds are gathering overhead, turning the cold evening colder. In the distance, the approaching storm voices its arrival with a crack of thunder. Pulling my coat close against the wind, I make my way across the lot towards the dark Vardo. The latch is splintered and broken. I push the door open and step inside. In many ways, this Vardo reminds me of Nax. The wood walls are painted gold, red, and teal, but the paint is faded, peeled, stained. 
The small picture windows are broken or blackened with dust. The wind blows in, shaking the ratty curtains. The iron stove sits in pieces to one side of the room, as if it had been in the midst of being fixed but was suddenly abandoned. The bed dominates the back of the Vardo. The sheets and blanket are neatly made and would look ready for sleep, if not for the layer of dust and cobwebs spanning between the posts. Outside it begins to hail. The sharp plick-plick sounds of ice bouncing off the roof fills the cabin. I step deeper inside and sit on the bench that lines one side of the interior. Beside me is a small wooden toolbox with the handle of a hammer sticking out the top. I pick it up and weigh it in my hands. The head is tinged orange and red with rust that looks like blood. And then I don't know what happens, but I'm on my feet again and swinging the hammer like a sword around the small room. I bring it down on the bed frame and the storage trunks and the broken iron stove. I break all the windows that weren't broken already. I break the faces off the angels and saints and animals carved into the walls and benches and storage trunks. Outside, lightning flashes. The thunder sounds so close it nearly feels like it's me making it boom and crash. I scream until my throat burns. And when I'm finished, everything's broken. The sound of the door creaking open snaps me from my rage. And when I look up, there's Knack and Mal standing in the doorway staring at me. Knack looks around the Vardo as if taking inventory. Then he fixes me with a hard look and marches off into the hail without saying a word. Mal watches him go before turning back to me. You're angry, she says, eyeing the hammer in my hand. That's good. Anger will keep you alive. Anger will make the people who did this to you suffer. She looks at me as if trying to discern whether I hurt her or not. Then she turns and seems about to go, but stops. Come to my Vardo at first light, and I'll teach you to use that anger. And then she slips out the doorway and I'm alone again. The hammer slips from my hand and thuds dully to the floor. I sit on the edge of the bed and stare out at the muddy lot, and beyond that, the streetlights descending into the dark. A spider that had been hiding in the folds of the sheet scuttles for cover. Mel's shadow darkens the window of her Vardo, staring back at me. I lie back on the hard bed, dusty like a tomb. I'm suddenly exhausted, and despite the cold, I let sleep find me. When I wake, it's still dark. My stomach complains. My body screams in pain, as though it suddenly remembered my many injuries. There's a ball in my chest, like a bullet lodged beneath the skin. Sitting up, I'm surrounded by everything I destroyed yesterday. And that's when I remember the look on Nack's face when he saw what I'd done. Outside, the sun eases over the rooftops, blue and yellow, like a bruise. I'm practicing what I'm going to say as I march across the lot, pockmarked with half-melted hail. The lights in the Vardos flicker to life behind the window panes as the irregulars begin to wake. The door swings open before I knock. You're late, 
Mal says, glaring at me. I... She waves my words away. If I'm going to teach you what I know, there's no time to waste. She steps out, latches the door behind her, and begins to march away. Wait, I call to her. I don't even know what we're doing. She turns and looks at me like I'm an idiot. I'm going to teach you how to hurt people. Mal leads me through the early morning crowd. To where? I'm not sure. I keep my head down so as not to be recognized. Mal turns an angry eye at me and says, Why are you dragging your feet? If I'm going to teach you, you must be quick. But if I'm recognized, Mal's laugh is sharp, mean, and without any humor in it at all. No one is looking for you, my dear. But the posters and the news reports. <laughs> they broadcast this morning that the gunslingers had killed all the criminals associated with the sinking of the riverboat. No one is looking for you. But just because, because nothing. If the radio tells people to be afraid, the people will be afraid. If the radio tells them not to worry and to buy more things, then that's what they'll do. People are sheep, Emma. The sooner you learn that, the sooner you'll discover what real power is. And then she turns and presses on through the crowd. I stand there and watch her. The image from yesterday of the crowd gathered around the intersection comes back to me, as clear as a photograph. The expressions on their faces as they looked at the only people I loved in the world, lying dead in the street. It's the same look I've noticed people wear at hangings. A look of sickly superiority, fascination, excitement. I hate them for that look. And then it all hits me again. They're dead. They're dead. And never coming back. And it's all their fault. These peoples. The gunslingers. All of them. I follow Mal as she turns off the main road, and we make our way down a narrow, empty street, away from the crowds and noise. Here, the day is still and dark. Without anyone around, a deep silence pervades this place. In the city, there are no birds chirping, no animals snuffling in the dirt or lizards dragging their bellies along the ground. Here, the silence is deathly cold. The narrow street opens up into another wide avenue, speckled with coal-blackened cobblestones and lined with decrepit buildings, slouching towards one another like wizened men. This is the rookery, Mal says. A slum of old warehouses, machine shops, and row houses. We follow the avenue for a while, passing a defunct coal refinery, a metal smelter where the cooled iron lay, spilled and frozen around the broken works, and a whole village worth of houses in various stages of falling down, peopled with squatters who watch us with suspicion as we soldier past. Even after so many years of disuse, the air is heavy with smoke, and the ground and walls of the buildings are layered with coal dust, thick as paint. The avenue ends at the gates of a tall, old building made of coal-smoke-stained stone. The gates hang bent and open, and Mal squeezes through into the wide, unkempt courtyard. I shuffle through after her. What is this place? I ask as we make our way to the building. An old hospital for the factory workers. Long shuttered. They call it the nest. Stay close. No telling who may be inside. The large front doors must once have been an intimidating sight. 
The passage into the building stands 20 feet high, but the doors lie on the stoop as if blown off their hinges. Beyond the entrance, a deep impenetrable blackness greets us. Mal doesn't pause, but presses into the building without so much as striking a match, and I hurry behind her so as not to lose her in the darkness. On the roof, the wind howls loud and freezing. We stand at the edge, watching the city below. The people, small like specks, and little square carriages and buggies moving around, like leaves in a stream. See how they all move together? Sort of. Mao eyes me sidelong, dissatisfied with my answer. They do. They have only three cares in the world. Eat, sleep, work. They only know what they're told. Why are you telling me this? Because you are a person who lets their emotions get the better of them. No, I'm not that person. You are. I've listened to your stories. I've seen how you acted when the gunslingers murdered your friends. They weren't just friends. Mal waits a moment before speaking again. She smirks, happy that I've proven her point. As for me, I can't stop picturing Lobo's and Cass's bodies in the street, the bloodstained sheets covering their forms. If you're going to get revenge, then you're going to have to learn that most people are either monsters or sheep. But that's enough for now, she says, cutting me off. I expect my students to keep their mouths shut and their eyes and ears open. Her words remind me of growing up of the sisters at the orphanage. Face to face, I realize for the first time how much taller Mal is than me. Now she sizes me up and down and says, Don't know if you have enough meat on your bones to be a proper bullet catcher. I was taught that it isn't about muscle or how big you are. It's about practice and discipline. She scoffs. Sounds to me like your teacher was okay with you being soft. She leans in so we're nearly nose to nose and says, Rest assured, I will not be so easy. I will teach you to stop a bullet like a wall. And to be a wall, you need strength. Strength of body, strength of will, strength of mind. Every time she says the word strength, she hammers her chest with her fist. Then she turns and counts out 20 paces. And when she turns, she has a gun in her hand. Remember how your friends looked when you saw them shot dead. Do not run from the memory. Put it in your heart like a fire and feed it with all the ways the gunslingers have hurt you. All the ways they've tried to ruin your life. I close my eyes. I see them. I see their bodies. I see the blood. I see the ruined motor car and the people standing slack-jawed by the side of the road and Nico emerging from the back of the wagon. Are you ready? Mal's voice cracks the memory like a lightning strike. I open my eyes. Ready. She raises the gun and fires. I spin easily away. It's become nearly second nature. I'm moving even before Mal pulls the trigger, and by the time the bullet leaves the chamber, I'm ready. A fraction of a second later, my path crosses with the bullets, and I pull it toward me, letting it skirt around my shoulder as I turn, before bending it safely downward into the roof. 
These aren't dancing lessons, Mal barks. I'm not teaching you to spin and dip. Attack the bullet, damn it! She stomps up to me and presses the gun into my hands. What did I say? I said be a wall, not a lily. She turns and again counts out the paces between us. And when she faces me, she stands square and crouched, her thick, scarred hands on her knees. At this distance, in the cool, hazy air, she looks carved from stone. She hammers her chest. Now, shoot me, if you can. I hold Mal's shooter in my hands. The weight feels cold and alien. The gun is old, recently polished, and oiled. I wrap my fingers around the careworn handle, and suddenly it doesn't feel so strange anymore. This terrible thing. And I raise the barrel and shoot. Mal doesn't spin out of the way or redirect the bullet. She raises one foot in the air like she's about to lunge at me and raises her arms above her head. Then, as the gun goes off, she brings them down. There's a rumbling, crashing sound. The wind changes direction, blowing dust into my eyes. I'm reminded of the Southland, how you had to be careful riding in the shadow of the largest dunes, because sometimes it took only the sound of the horses galloping to make the sand rumble and come down in one huge golden sheet. I imagine Mal moving like that, like a wall of sand coming down and smothering the bullets. And when I manage to get the dust out of my eyes, she's standing there, her hands on her hips, staring at me. If you close your eyes again, when I'm trying to learn you something, then you'll never open them again. Clear? I straighten up as tall as I can. Crystal. She waves her hand for me to come over to her, and when I jog up, I notice the crater of cracked tile where she had taken her step toward the bullet, and beside it, the bullet itself, a flattened piece of orange metal. I pick it up and turn it over in my hands, wondering over it. And when I turn back to Mao, she seems suddenly full of magic. She smirks, recognizing the awe in my eyes. So... She says, do you want to learn to stop bullets like a wall? Yes, I tell her. I want to know. We reset. The gun is back in Mal's hand. She stands 20 paces away, her loose braided silver hair flopping in the chill wind. Stand square to me, she calls. It is not enough to be unafraid of the bullet. You must be angry at it. You must hate it. I do as she says. I imitate her stance. My hands on my knees, my body square and open to the gun. I close my eyes and focus on my anger. But I've never tried to make myself angry. And after studying with Lobo, who taught me to lose my anger, to let go of hate, it's suddenly hard to find again. When Mal raises the gun and pulls the trigger, I'm gripped with an old fear. It's as if I'm a novice facing the test all over again. I don't know what to do, how I'm supposed to move, what I'm supposed to think. My muscles want to move in the old way, to spin and dodge, but instead I freeze. The bullet bites into my thigh, but it hurts more on the way out. It comes out the back of my leg, taking, I discover later, a small chunk of flesh with it. Mal Shooter is not small. 
and the wound is something more than a glancing shot. I collapse, sucking air like I'd just been punched in the gut. But I'm not afraid. Now I am angry. I've lived enough of the bullet-catching life to know when a wound is mortal. Mal shot missed bone and artery. It's a flesh wound. An angry one, one that will keep me limping for weeks, but a flesh wound nonetheless. I grit my teeth through the pain. The far north's early evening has snuck up on us, and the air is bitter cold. Mal's shadow falls over me, wide and deep black. Disappointing, is all she says. She waits while I tie off the wound. I'll have to do it properly when I get back to camp, but it'll do for now. Then Mal helps me to my feet and steadies me for the long walk back. The wind picks up, blowing my hair every which way, and I turn to see the drops of blood I've left behind, like breadcrumbs to find my way back to this place, where Mal will teach me to kill all over again. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Mal drops me like a sack of dead cats on the steps leading up to Nax Vardo. She raps on the door, and from inside comes the creaking and shuffling of Nack, rising to answer. Mal is already making her way back to her wagon by the time the door swings open. What the hell happened here? He calls to Mal, and without turning, she hollers back, Whatever it was, it's your problem tonight. He looks down at me, and in his eyes I can see that he's still angry for how I wrecked the other Vardo the night before. I half expect him to tell me to get lost. I wouldn't blame him if he did. Since our meeting, all I've done is cause him grief. But then he lets down a hand, and I take it, and he helps me up and inside. He sets me down on the bench and begins rummaging in a cabinet for bandages and needle and thread. I'm getting blood everywhere, I say. Don't worry about it. He comes back with his arms full of bandages. He sets it all down in a pile beside me. Gingerly, he unwraps and peels back the cloth I'd covered the wound with. It's soaked through with blood. How bad is it? I ask, if only because it seems the appropriate thing to say. It's not good, he says, but you'll live, and you'll get to keep your leg. It's going to leave a wicked scar, though. I'm used to those, I say, laying back. He uncorks a bottle of clear alcohol and pours it over the wound. The shock of it makes me sit straight up. He pushes the bottle into my hands and says, Drink. It'll help. I bring the bottle to my lips and tilt it back. 
It goes down like fire. It's nothing like snakebite or whiskey. It tastes like the stuff they put in motors to make them go. It takes him a good half hour to get the wound sewn up and bandaged, and by the end of it his hands are covered in blood. It runs down his arms and pools on the bench and floor of the Vardo. He fills a wash basin with hot water from the stove and soap. He wipes the blood from my leg with a damp rag and wrings it out in the basin, turning the water a deep red. Then he folds up the rag and presses it gently to my forehead. The warmth feels good. And suddenly I'm so tired I could fall asleep this instant. You're pale as a sheet, he says. I'm fine, I mumble. I never said you weren't. I had had my eyes shut, but the way he says those words make me open them again. The way he looks at me, like he's somehow both worried for me and, I don't know, admiring? No one's ever looked at me like that before. Back at Dimitri's, sometimes a man would get drunk and wander into my washroom or try to grab me when I went out front to sweep or gather up the dirty glasses. And they'd look at me, like a coyote looks at a rabbit, their eyes half closed as if that would keep me from noticing them staring. And it would take a swift slap or me stepping on their toes as they tried to grab me for them to realize I wasn't that free meal they thought I was. And then they'd rejoin their drunken compatriots and they would laugh at me. And then I think about the man aboard the steamship, the one who wanted more than just a grab and a laugh the one I killed for what he wanted from me. Hey, where are you? It's Nack's voice, breaking through my thoughts. You look miles away. I guess I was. I sit up again and try to swing my leg off the bench. Thanks for the help, but I reckon I'll get out of your hair. Don't be ridiculous, he says. You're in no shape to move. He says all this with that same stupid expression he was wearing before. That mix of concern and admiration. Or lust. Or whatever the hell it is. Don't look at me like that. His face drops. Like what? Just don't. I'm not interested. He nods, his face serious. Okay. Okay? Okay. But you still shouldn't sleep in that old Vardo. You'll catch fever, and then you'll be as good as dead. And I don't want to have done all this work for nothing. And now I can tell he's joking, my rejection rolling off him like drops of water. Fine. Fine? I can feel the smile trying to bubble up from beneath the surface, and I do my best to push it back down. But... It must have come out a bit for the way Nax smiles back at me. Fine, I tell him. Then he helps me to the bed and lowers me down to the soft, feather-filled mattress. Moments later, I'm already asleep, consumed by the candlelight and warmth around me. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton, performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona. <laughs>